This is the summer of 2015. I had the opportunity to go to Project LEAD and I almost didn't go because, well, I was kind of depressed. And then at the very last moment, I started to feel a little better, came out of my doldrums. And I'm like, what the heck else do I have to do? I'll go out there. I like learning about cancer. So I got a flight, went out to California, went to Project LEAD. And that's where I met Dr. Stephanie Goff. Stephanie is on the research team at the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Steve Rosenberg is the head of that team. She was just teaching us basic science about how your immune system works. At the end said, oh, by the way, we're running this clinical trial and, and talked about it for a few minutes. But I thought to myself, that sounds like a good fit for me. I had had my eyes and ears open looking for some kind of immunotherapy trial because I had heard about them curing someone with a glioblastoma at Duke University using this same kind of T-cell therapy. But I had looked and looked on clinicaltrials.gov, couldn't find anything, and this trial, you can't find it. Unless you know exactly the keywords to type in, it's impossible to find this trial. And in my case, it was more a trial of last resort. Welcome to the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm so glad you're here since no one should face MBC alone. The Road to a Cure series continues down in the DC area at the prestigious National Institute of Health with Dr. Stephanie Goff and literally on the road with NBC advocate Judy Perkins as she calls in from the highway. Senior producer Victoria Goldberg continues this virtual tour of research greats around the United States in this fourth stop in our series that will release a new interview on the concept of a cure every Monday until the beginning of the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in early December. The Road to a Cure team, led by Victoria Goldberg, is made up of Paula Jane, Ellen Landsberger, and Kate Fitzer. I will let us get quickly to the interview, but I feel compelled to say how struck I've been with the humanity and heart that propels oncology researchers like Stephanie Goff. Throughout this series, I'm reminded of the words of the great Dr. Paul Kalanithi when he spoke of his own oncologist saying, doctors, it turns out, need hope too. So here's another installment of brilliance and hope and reality and heart. We always can use a little dose of that. And so here's Victoria. Hello, friends. The publication of a June 2018 issue of Nature Medicine, a respected medical journal, may have marked, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, not the beginning of the end, but perhaps the end of the beginning of the road to eradicate some forms of metastatic breast cancer. That issue contained an article with an incomprehensible for a lay personal title. Immune recognition of somatic mutations leading to complete durable regression in metastatic breast cancer. The words at the very beginning of the article shook the world on the early summer day of June 4, 2018. We present a patient with chemorefractory, hormone-receptor-positive, metastatic cancer, who was treated with tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, TILS, reactive against mutant versions of four proteins. Adoptive transfer of these mutant protein-specific TILS in conjunction with interleukin-2 and checkpoint blockade mediated the complete durable regression of metastatic breast cancer, which now is ongoing, and it represents a new immunotherapy approach for the treatment of these patients. The we in the article is a team of researchers from the National Cancer Institute, led by Dr. Steven Rosenberg, chief of surgery, and a man who is widely considered the father of immunotherapy. A new immunotherapy approach in the article is generally known as cellular therapy, and more specifically, adoptive T-cell therapy, a method 
that essentially farms T-cells, grows out the ones effective against cancer, and transfers them back to the patient. A patient, in the article, was a 49-year-old Florida woman with stage 4 breast cancer and large tumors throughout her body. Her name is Judy Perkins, and she is alive and well today and continues to be no evidence of disease. Our series would be incomplete without a conversation with Dr. Stephanie Goff, a senior member of Dr. Rosenberg's team, and Judy's doctor. We're very fortunate that Judy joins us as well to speak with her doctor and recall her incredible story of being part of this groundbreaking trial. was a good candidate because I had a bunch of tumors and a lot of us have bone only disease and you have to have at least two soft tissue tumors that they can cut one out to harvest the T cells and have another one to observe to see if the treatment's working. And for many of us, by the time you have those kinds of tumors, it's in your lung or it's in your liver. And the problem is it takes them four months to culture these cells and expand them into an IV bag full of 81 billion of them. The name of the trial is immunotherapy using tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. So lymphocytes are white blood cells that are infiltrating the tumor. What they do is they harvest a tumor. And in my case, I was really lucky. I had a brand new tumor in my right breast, which made it really easy to resect. And I feel like this is part of the reason it worked. They did a lumpectomy and took that tumor out. And then what they do is they slice it up into little bits and they feed it some good cell food. It's called interleukin-2, which is an immunosystem stimulant. And basically those little white blood cells crawl out of the tumor and they collect them and they just keep feeding them and keep them at the right temperature and make them all happy. And they grow them up into an IV bag full of T-cells. But in my case, they took it one step further. So if you do that, if you take all the cells that crawl out of the tumor and grow all of them, that is called bulk till. This therapy works really well for certain types of cancer, mostly melanoma, where it works almost half the time. And it also works fairly well for some of the blood cancers like leukemia and lymphoma. They think it works better because they have more mutations and they think those are what are called hot cancers. And what they're trying to do with the trial that I was on is get this therapy working for other cancers, epithelial cancers, including breast cancer, that tend to be cold cancers that tend to have fewer mutations. So in my case, I had about 60 mutations and four of those mutations were recognized by the T cells. So they did what was called selective TIL. All the white blood cells crawl out of the tumor and they take 24 piles of these cells and put them in a dish and then they start feeding them proteins that look like my cancer and they see which of these piles reacts to my cancer and basically four out of the 24 reacted and one of them died. So three out of the 24. So one out of eight of those cells was actually responding to my cancer. So that was a whole extra step that the lab had to do to choose those cells that really wanted to eat my cancer. So that was part of the reason it took them so long. They took my regular genome from my red blood cells and then compared it to the cancer genetic mutations. They have science that explains these are the primary mutations and then these are the secondary mutations, trying to understand when it works, why does it work, when it doesn't work, why doesn't it work. So they're doing all that too, which is another reason it takes four months for them to get your cells ready. If, for example, none of those cells had reacted against my cancer, if there had been no recognition whatsoever, they would know it wouldn't work. There are some T cells in this bag that 
kind of recognize your cancer and some of them will go after it. So they cannot predict whether it'll completely turn your immune system on enough, whether they just have a little snack and go to sleep. <laughs> they, they don't know if this thing's going to work. So they grow up an IV bag full of these 81 billion T cells that hopefully recognize the cancer. And then they put a giant catheter in you so that they can squeeze those cells into you in like a minute because those cells are very temperature sensitive. The first thing they do is they hit you with high dose chemotherapy. And the thinking is we're gonna temporarily suppress your immune system so that all the other back talk and conversation happening with all your other white blood cells, we're gonna temporarily suppress that so that when we put the IV bag in with all the soldiers that recognize your specific cancer, they just seek and destroy. They just go in on a blank field and do their thing. In my case, I think I had about seven doses of that interleukin-2, which is food that these cells like. And the cells are happy, but the patient, not so much. It makes the patient very miserable. But the goal is to get as much of that stimulant to keep those cells going so they can get started and get the ball rolling. And then after that, your bone marrow regenerates the rest of your immune system. And about a week and a half or so, your white blood cell counts are back up high enough where they can let you go home. They sent me home about 10 days after being treated. But even before I left the NIH, that one little tumor that I could feel in my upper left chest, I could tell it was getting slightly smaller. So I'm like, all right, I'm getting a little bit of a move in the right direction. I'll take it. Let's just go home because I was so miserable. And I just went home and I moved from the bed to the couch to the bed to the couch for two weeks before I was even able to walk around the block. I'm still on the six month schedule. I go up there every year, but I think they're gonna move me to the year schedule pretty soon. Through the power of Zoom technology, we were able to bring our guests together, figuratively, even though they were literally far apart. We found Judy somewhere on route 95 on her way from Florida to upstate New York, where she was about to compete in a grueling endurance testing kayak race. Dr. Goff was in her new office in Bethesda, and as she informed us, not without some pride, that she had a window and even a space for a small conference table. It was heartwarming to witness these two women together, a patient and a doctor who has saved her life. Two friends who have made history and whose names will forever be linked together. so honored to have you here and have Judy on the road join us as well is an additional wonderful bonus so thank you for being here we're driving from Florida up to uh, Old Forge in the Adirondacks and um, there's a big race that starts on Friday I don't think this is the first interview I've done with Judy where she's been in a car <laughs> really <laughs> I think the last time it was stationary though why don't we begin with how you got into this field? How did you join this legendary person? How does it feel to work with somebody like him? It is the great joy of my life that I get to work with someone who really is a Renaissance man. He's not just brilliant, but he's kind and he is a phenomenal mentor. And to go from having been his trainee to being his colleague has been remarkable. I took a lot of twists and turns getting into medicine. It was not what I thought I wanted to be when I grew up. But then I did get into surgical oncology. Surgery is a wonderful field, and it gives you the opportunity to do a lot of good for a lot of people. But you really only have the opportunity to affect the person that's right in front of you. And 
there was an opportunity for me to take a break and do some research. For personal reasons, I wanted to be in the Washington, D.C. area, and I ended up interviewing with Dr. Rosenberg. And he must have seen something in me that wasn't on my CV because I hadn't had any research experience before. But he brought me here and I got to work with him for four years. And during that time, it really cemented that concept that I really wanted to help more than just the person in front of me. And I wanted to be able to help patients that didn't have other options. Even going into surgical oncology, the population that you tend to work with as a surgical oncologist are early stage cancers. They are people for whom you can actually affect a cure with a scalpel. It's early stage breast, melanoma, uh, colon cancer. We cure a lot of people with those diseases just through an operation, sometimes with a little bit of chemotherapy before, but then sometimes an operation. And it takes an advanced skill set to be able to do that, but it takes what I think an even bigger advanced skill set to be able to move out of that population and into the stage four population. And that's not something that surgeons have a lot of experience with. And getting to spend that time here as a fellow, learning how to help people cope with the end of what might be their cancer journey, because that would frequently happen once patients got into trials like ours. And just the humanity of that and being able to provide hope to a dark place, it touched me as a person and a doctor. It made me a better doctor being able to handle those things. And when you go back and you look at the opportunities in front of you, could I have gone on to be a a pancreas surgeon, which is what I thought I wanted to do? Probably, but so could a lot of people. And do I think everyone has what it takes to stand next to Dr. Rosenberg and help him move his work forward? I'm not certain. And I'm humble enough to recognize that I may not be the best person to do that, but I certainly think that I am capable of it. And I think there's no other place I'd rather be. He offered me the job within a few hours of me being here, and I didn't even hesitate. How do you cope with so much death as a metastatic patient? And Julie can agree with me. We have lost so many friends. We are the lucky ones who are around for a while, and it's tough. And how do you manage to stay sane with all of this? I think that anybody that works in this field can only do it if they have a strong support system. For me, that includes my family. It includes my partner. And if we weren't making progress, if we weren't moving forward, if I didn't see any value in what it was that we were trying to pursue, then it would be almost too much to overcome. But I do see glimmers of hope in what we do. And while certainly we've not had anyone else that come through that's had the remarkable success that Judy has, We've had little glimmers that have told us that we are going in the right direction and we just need to study it more. We've seen a patient where the treatment that we gave her was able to get rid of all of her visceral disease, but we weren't able to control her bony cancer. If you see the sort of mixed things in the penumbra of what might happen, they open up a thousand different windows to look for ways to make things better. If I didn't work in a place where we were always opening those windows, it wouldn't be sustainable. But for every time it doesn't work, I have a memory of a person who's out there living their life. And it's not just Judy. We've had some patients in the melanoma community, some patients in the colorectal bile duct uh, cancer communities. And I get to see them from time to time and I'm reminded of what they got. They got to a wedding, they got to a graduation, they got to hold a grandchild. And that's because of the work that we did here. We don't go to sleep at night thinking about the positive experiences. We go to sleep at night thinking about the ones that didn't work. But when it gets to be almost too much, that's when that positive experience shines its little light and takes us back out of the tunnel. Thank you. So beautiful. Let's switch to the very provocative topic, is cure possible for metastatic breast cancer? Well, I think you've got someone on the line that would tell you cure is possible for metastatic breast cancer. Judy, Um, is cure possible for metastatic breast cancer? 
I think cure is definitely possible, but it sure seems to only be available to a very small subset of us. And that is the problem. So maybe the actual definition of a cure can be changed. Well, I think we have to be very careful with that word so that we don't dilute what it means. Because you can ask Judy, I wouldn't use the word cure with her for a very long time. I'm still a little hesitant to do it now, knock on wood. Because to me, cure means that you are beyond the point where you think it's possible that the cancer could come back. And in patients with early cancers, because we have a lot of data there, we can say that to people. When I cut out a very small melanoma or a very early stage breast cancer, you get to a certain point where the risks of that coming back are so incredibly low that you feel more comfortable using the word cure in your language. We don't have enough data to tell us when that's possible for patients with metastatic breast cancer. It takes time for that paradigm to shift. One example I can think of is patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. It used to be that once you got metastasis to your liver, you were considered incurable. But now because years have gone by and data have accumulated and surgeons have been able to show that, no, if you can resect them, there's a possibility they will live the rest of their life without another cancer treatment. And that's probably a better definition for cure. Being able to live the rest of your life without another cancer treatment and not to be blunt, but to die of something else. I think that the world has seen such a dramatic change in the past decade with the institution of the monoclonal antibodies. And until we figure out for whom those work, we're not going to be able to get better um, at helping people understand what a cure is. If we could whittle that down and understand who's going to respond to that, then we may be able to bring a brighter glimmer of hope to patients that fall in that category because the immune system is incredibly powerful. And when it can be engaged in the right way, it can do magnificent things. But the problem is we don't know in which patients how to engage it the best. And for some of those people, it might be checkpoint inhibitors. And for some of those people, it might be something as complex as till therapy. And we just don't know where that might be. So we're at the beginning. We went through a very long phase where the only option patients had was chemotherapy. And that was a dark and dangerous phase. And I think that we've gotten very used to the idea recently, in the last eight to 10 years, of expecting monumental progress quickly. And I think we just all have to remember that science has to slow down sometimes. We'll have these waves. I and mean, we had a magnificent wave of not only the checkpoint inhibitors, but the CD4K inhibitors. We had this big wave of effective medications that came out. And it's going to take us a while to figure out how to use those best and to open that window of opportunity to find the next generation of what the next wave is going to be. But getting back onto immunotherapy, sometimes you get all this information prematurely and it gives people hope and then all of a sudden that hope is taken away and hype i guess is one of the most dangerous things about uh, medical research Uh a while back the news came out about judy and i i understand that you really did not want this news to come out it just came out uh, almost accidentally i remember the day vividly because i happened to be in chicago getting ready to prepare a talk actually in in on till and melanoma at the national convention for ASCO. So I was in Chicago and we had submitted the paper describing the work that we had done with Judy to Nature Medicine, Mm -hmm. not generally known to be a journal that gets a lot of lay attention, but serious immunologists, serious cancer focus. I had no idea and perhaps Dr. Rosenberg did, but I wasn't a hundred percent clear I think it just captured everyone's imagination. I was in Chicago. I got asked to do interviews with British television shows. Our our lead author, Dr. Zacharakis, was doing interviews in his native Greek. We had another fellow here who understood the work very clearly, who happens to 
be Croatian and he was giving interviews there. So it was an international phenomenon that we had no control over, couldn't explain. As hard as I tried to make sure everyone understood the limitations of what we were doing and to temper a lot of the excitement with some of the realities. And what I will say, though, is that it allowed us in a very rapid amount of time to gain the interest of a lot of people that wanted to be in our trial, which gave us more data to look at, which gave us more samples to try to understand what we were doing. And we've had a couple of clinical successes. We're not quite ready uh, to talk about them all yet, but it did give us a tremendous boost as far as people heard, found out about our trial and wanted to become involved. And that gave us an opportunity that we hadn't had before. So while it was an incredibly stressful two days with a lot of media attention, I think anything that makes our science better, makes our science stronger, gives us the opportunity to reach more people. We tried very hard to keep it real and and avoid the hype, but people will do what they will. Of course. People need, need hope. Judy is asked constantly. People want to hear her story. We did a podcast with Judy a while back, and it's one of the highest downloaded podcast in our very short one-year history, because mm-hmm. that's what people want. So what is this, the current status of this trial? We are still recruiting for it. I will say we've taken a, a small hiatus because we're in the process of, of opening a new facility to be able to handle the work that we want to do. Judy will tell you that when she was treated, the cells that she got came out of a small converted research lab right in the middle of building 10. And we now have a standalone facility with about 10 times the square footage that will allow us to treat more patients. But anytime you open a facility of that size, there are delays. So we're stuck there. But we are certainly still exploring this, not only for people with metastatic breast cancer, but for people with any cancer that comes from what we call the epithelial cells. So the lining of ducts, bile duct cancer. We strongly believe in the hypothesis in that what makes a cancer a cancer, the mutations that make it such that it grows also could turn out to be its weak point because that's what makes the immune system see it. And so we're going to continue to pursue that, not only using TIL like we did uh, with Judy, but harnessing the power of that to try to develop genetically engineered cells that can do the same thing. So that's more of a CAR T cell type of technology? There are differences between CAR T and what we do. What we do is a T cell based therapy. CAR T is phenomenal because it's the first and only cell therapy that has been approved for patients with cancer. And that's for patients with lymphoma and leukemia. And what is So astounding about it is that a car has to target something that sits on the surface of a cell. And what actually sits on the surface of a cancer cell is fairly limited because lymphomas and leukemias come from B cells. Uh, B cells are chock full of antigens that sit on the surface. Mm. And the other component of that is that a human being can live without B cells. So by using these car to attack everything that has that B cell marker, that CD19, you're getting rid of all the patient's cancer cells, but you're also diminishing their supply of normal, healthy B cells. But luckily patients can live without that. So the trick to CAR for other cancers is finding something on the surface of a cell that won't be dangerous if you destroy a normal cell. And so that's been a very fine line. T cell-based therapy requires a little bit more work by a tumor because it has to process something on the inside and put it on the surface. That's what makes it a little bit more difficult. But because of that, it's more of a targeted killing therapy, whereas CAR can be a little bit more indiscriminate if the target is on a normal cell as well as a cancer cell. The first effective cellular therapy that was demonstrated to actually control tumor was published by Dr. Rosenberg in 1988. And since that time, Primarily, we did the development of TIL, or he, I was 14. <laughs> Since that time, the development, of TIL, 
The development of TIL has been primarily in patients with melanoma. And that's because up until the arrival of checkpoint therapy, they really had nothing. They had interleukin-2, which would work in about 3% of patients, but didn't help the vast majority of people who got it. And because there was an unmet need there, and it appeared to be the, the correct tumor type, given that IL-2 did work, that was really where a lot of the development happened. And it was done very carefully in a way where first you test, do the cells work? Then you test, well, they didn't work this way. What if we give a little bit of chemotherapy first? Oh, looks like they might work better now. And so it was careful iterations of that nature that got us to the final, um, what we call a standard TIL therapy, which is chemotherapy up front, the infusion of the cells, and then interleukin-2 to support it. When we treated Judy, we were trying to understand we know that the cells, when we give them, have an upregulation of this marker called PD-1 to slow them down once they get into the body. So what would happen if we gave that checkpoint therapy drug a couple days ahead of time so the body was nice and ready and primed to prevent that from stopping these cells from working? And that was the hypothesis we were working on when we gave Judy her treatment. So what have we learned in the time since then? We know that chemotherapy is important because what it does, it clears out the immune system that the patient has. It makes the body hungry for T cells so that when we put these T cells back in, everything is there. The right recipe, if you will, is there so that they can start to proliferate and grow. And then because they've been in a lab for so long, giving that extra IL-2 is just that little extra juice to help them go. We have learned moving out of melanoma and into tumors like Judy's was that we needed to be a little bit more cautious in which cells we chose. So for patients with melanoma, we would often take the, the tills that grew the fastest because we thought that might be a marker of how much they could proliferate. And then we had to very carefully start studying the mutations the way we did for Judy. And I think that's been the biggest advance in the last 10 years is our understanding that we need to look for things that recognize mutations. And so now we're actually looking at the cells that we give in a way such that we can understand the RNA of every single cell that we gave, a process called single cell RNA. And then you can map out which ones you think might or might not have had something to do with the response. And when we did that for patients with melanoma, we think we found something called a stem-like T cell that might be the key. And so now we're trying to figure out how we can exploit what we've learned by studying patients that we've treated to make a prospective way of studying that. So can we find these stem-like cells to give to patients up front? And so that's the area that we're working now. But we're trying to use the, the newer technologies to help us understand both responses and non-responses so that we can then develop the next hypothesis for the next generation of TIL that, that we move toward. Yeah, so it, so it sounds like the answer for the word that we're trying to avoid using is a combination of cell biology and the next generation of genomic testing, as well as the tools of immunotherapy. Maybe that will get us there. I think what's been interesting in the last decade is that we have learned to what seem to be conflicting hypotheses. One is that every single person's tumor is unique, genetically unique to them, which takes us back from the paradigm of we should treat all breast cancer the same, we should treat all colon cancer the same. So it takes us away from that. But then what we've also learned on the other side is that despite being genetically unique, a lot of tumors do behave the same. So a lot of pancreas cancers have a lot of stroma that interferes with its ability to react to immunotherapy. A lot of breast cancers have a lot of stroma that interfere with its ability to be utilized by immunotherapy. So we've discovered not only the myriad ways which a cancer can be unique to the person that it lives in or came from, but we've also found different ways that we can start to group together better ways to approach them. It's not just all pancreas or all breast or all cancer. And I think that what slid by the lay community, which was really remarkable for the immuno-oncology community, was when the FDA released the first 
non-cancer-based approval. So it approved the checkpoint inhibitors, not on the basis of a kidney cancer or a melanoma or a colon cancer or a breast cancer, on the basis of a test for mismatch repair deficiency. Right. And that was the first, what we call tissue agnostic approval of a cancer drug. And it was unique. And, and now I think it's fairly common for the trials to be basket trials for different cancers. I think we, we, what we've done is we've deconstructed old groups and we're building new ones. And the old ones were based on anatomy and the new ones are going to be based on molecular genetics. Molecular genetics. Just going back a little bit to what you said a few minutes ago, and uh, I, I have to be honest with you, I did not quite understand when you used the word stroma. I knew I had heard the word, but mm -hmm. I didn't know what it meant. I would say an understanding of what tumor stroma is requires you to understand that when we take out a tumor, it's not that every single cell that's in that mass that we take out is a cancer cell. Sometimes, quite frequently, very few of them are. And so you have to, the, our pathologist can help us look and see which parts of that mass that we take out are actually tumor cells, which parts are the immune system infiltrating that mass, which parts are the connective tissue that we have all over our body, pieces of collagen, pieces of connective tissue. It all combines to make this mass. It is very rare that you take out a tumor from somebody and it's 100% cancer there's almost always some other kind of tissue cell in there. And so anything that's not a cancer is considered part of the tumor microenvironment mm -hmm. or stroma. And some tumors, pancreas in particular, has a very dense stroma, such that if you were to take out a tumor that's a three centimeter sphere, there may only be a centimeter or so that's actually tumor. And the rest may be inflammatory tissue around it. And that's what we call stroma. I've heard that pancreatic cancer is so very hard to treat partly because of its microenvironment. And is that true for breast cancer as well? For some, it is true that the stroma may prevent it in, in one very physical way. It's just a barrier between drugs getting through the blood system and actually getting to the cancer. It's an actual physical barrier yeah. to that happening. And then in others, if it's a barrier to some of the bigger cells of the immune system getting in, it can be a barrier to allowing things like checkpoint inhibitors to work. So it's a blend of things. When you said barrier, of course, everybody in the breast cancer community, when they hear the word barrier, think about the brain mats that are fairly common for people with the more aggressive types of cancer. Having brain metastasis and leptin and angial disease seem to be the roadblocks to making this cancer more of a chronic disease. So I don't know if immunotherapy have, has ever played a role in treating brain mats. And what is the role of immunotherapy in the future, you think, for treating these very difficult metastases? Certainly, travel from the primary site into the central nervous system is a devastating progression of a tumor. Is there evidence that immunotherapy can work? Yes. In patients with melanoma who had metastatic brain disease, the use of the checkpoint inhibitors could make that disease go away. I don't know the specifics. I wasn't involved in his care, but those caring for President Carter have said that that was the drug that, that helped him get through that. When it comes to the more experimental things like our TIL therapy, we have actually seen metastatic deposits in the brain go away with TIL therapy, um, implying that in some way, the lymphocytes that we gave were actually able to get to that tumor. Now there's always been a debate as to whether our TIL cells can actually cross the blood-brain barrier or whether the presence of a tumor has weakened the blood-brain barrier. And I think it's probably a combination of both for a tumor cell to be able to lodge there, to find its niche and be able to grow, implies that there was some sort of rupture of the blood-brain barrier to begin with. Right now, because of the experimental nature of what we're doing, 
we have hesitated from treating patients with brain mets. And that's because with the chemotherapy that we use, it puts you at risk for bleeding. And the last thing we want to do is have someone who's leading a relatively normal life with the exception of the presence of these brain mets that may be absolutely asymptomatic to turn that into a situation that looks more like a stroke. And so until we understand better who will or won't respond, or until we can make better educated conversations about that, we limit this particular protocol to very limited CNS disease. Mm -hmm. Now, what you will find as people get more comfortable with the therapy, they will start to push that envelope. Mm -hmm. So I happen to know that as the CD19 car has gotten approval for leukemia and lymphoma, they're now starting to explore it in patients who have primary CNS lymphoma or who have presence of uh, central nervous system disease, which was a contraindication. So you have to kind of slowly move along that pathway to make sure that you're not harming anyone. Because as wonderful as hope can be, we all know how bad false hope can be. It's a tricky um, tightrope to walk. But as you move along those steps and demonstrate that what you're doing has value, you can start to get a little bit more aggressive with how you're applying it. And I don't think we're there yet for till outside of melanoma. These trials are very expensive. And the uh, price tag on all of these treatments is certainly hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. Do you see that that would be a problem in the future with making these treatments available to broader population? You know, I think it's a wonderful question. And I think the only thing we have is a model right now. As people were asking this question for CAR, for the CAR-19 products, a group actually did a modeling study. You have to compare the difference of an upfront price tag that's very high versus years of a chronic price tag that's by no means low, but certainly not as high as the upfront. And what they found was in the economic analysis of it, the lifetime cost of that treatment and achieving a certain number of quality of life years for that patient was actually better with the upfront expensive therapy. To my knowledge, no one has done that analysis for other types of therapies, but I think that's probably a pretty good analogy. I'm certainly not the first person to say that the way to lower healthcare costs for cancer is to cure it. The sooner that we can do that, the sooner that we can get patients into remission where your annual cost may be a CAT scan or two versus months and years of daily oral medications that are expensive, the sooner we can get to that, the better uh, we'll be as far as healthcare costs. I don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely. Thank you. And I know it was not something that you like talking about, but I figured I would ask because it's a question that people ask all the time. But I think a lot of people ask about financial toxicity, but they don't also contemplate psychosocial toxicity. Yeah. These people who had wonderful outcomes with CD19 right. got to go on and live their life. They're not at the doctor's office every two weeks or every three weeks for an infusion. And I think the psychosocial benefits to that, Judy can attest to that. She's on her way to go kayak. Being able to set aside that patient hat that just isn't possible with some of the chronic treatments developed. For us, with the advocates, and of course I know you're active with National Breast Cancer Coalition, what would you see us do to help you guys bring the cure closer? I think one of the things that's most important for advocates and for people with cancer who are trying to manage this diagnosis that's fallen into their lap is that the earlier you can get into clinical trials, the better we're going to be able to move forward. Community oncologists do a fantastic job of helping manage some aspects of metastatic breast cancer such that it can feel like a chronic disease, but often those treatments will leave your immune system a little battered. 
or your blood system a little battered. And it makes it a little bit more difficult to move forward with exciting new aggressive strategies. And while certainly you have to exercise some judgment as to when's the right time to jump to a clinical trial, I would say we don't have anything yet that we can point to and say, this is curative, do this first and then do that. And I think that even if the clinical trial you're looking for is two different kinds of chemotherapy, at least you're helping answer a question. And that doesn't mean you have to be at an academic center. There are plenty of community oncologists that are participating in clinical trial networks such that we can learn as much as we can from every single person that is having to deal with this disease. Because until we understand the effects of, say, gemcitabine on a 73-year-old in a rural town, we're not going to know the answers to why we use gemcitabine in a 37-year-old person in an urban downtown center. So the more information we can get, the better. And just early participation in clinical trials. I know there's a lot of hesitancy among certain populations to enroll in trials because of concerns of ethics and transparency. And all I can do is plead with you to let you know that we've come so far from what I know was a hideous and checkered past and anything that we can do to help restore that trust in what the medical community is trying to offer can only be done if you engage with us. If you meet with us and you still don't trust us, that's fine. I'm glad you brought up clinical trials because we actually did two episodes last season about clinical trials. And what we were talking about was a little different. We, we were looking at it from a different point of view. A lot of clinical trials are set up in such a way with the exclusionary criteria and the washout period that make it very difficult for a lot of people to go on a trial. I have a friend who is basically chemo-naive, but she has been on uh, one too many different treatments that prevented her from going on a trial. And we see this over and over again, especially, as you mentioned, with the CNS disease. Most people are excluded from the trials. And so my question to you is, what would be the first couple of things you would change right away in the way clinical trials are structured to make it a little easier and more accessible to most of us to go on them. Whenever we talk to people, we always tell them, and I'm sure Judith does too, to, uh, to explore trials early and often and not to look at them as Hail Mary. But again, we are always faced with the situation of so many problems to go on a trial. It's a complex question. And I think it has at least two parts, if not more. The first is, why do we have exclusion criteria? And I will tell you that the culture here is very much, if I'm going to have an exclusion criteria, I better have a good scientific or medical reason why I have it. I can't say that for every other institute, but I would imagine that it's very similar. So one of the struggles is to make sure people recognize that it's not that we don't want to help them. It's that we have very strong reasons to feel why what we're doing may not be safe for them. And then the second thing is hesitancy with trials. I know for ours in particular, because of the long inpatient stay, you have to be of a certain socioeconomic background to be able to withstand that sort of time away from work and family. And I think that one of the big benefits that has come from this pandemic that has struck us all is that telemedicine has become much more acceptable as a means of participating in clinical trials. And so I think that soon, perhaps maybe not for trials like ours that are so incredibly intense, but for trials testing this versus that, drugs that can be used by community oncologists, we'll see a lot more people being able to participate because telemedicine will be allowed. We'll see a lot more of people being able to get their medications at home. 
rather than going to that tertiary care center to receive it. And I think that that will open it up in perhaps maybe the most meaningful way because we'll actually be able to study people across the spectrum. It's not easy to get up here to Bethesda. I'm sure Judy will tell you that. And I'm sure it was very frustrating to come here just to get a shot of Pembro and turn around and go home. And the pandemic actually allowed us to build mechanisms such that people didn't have to do that. We could work with their home docs. We could check their labs. They could give the Pembro. We could do that. Now, once the pandemic subsides, I think some of those mechanisms will stay in place. And I think that that will be a phenomenal way of opening up clinical trials. I understand the point that you were making in the beginning. It's very difficult because we do have to have exclusions and inclusions to make sure that the science is right. Because the last thing that we want to do is ask people to volunteer for a study. And because we weren't careful enough with our inclusions and exclusions, you put 200 women through something and then the community says, well, these results aren't valid because you let this person in or you wouldn't let these people in. Then we've just wasted 400 people's time. If it seems like an unreasonable exclusion or inclusion, push the research nurses on it. But I will tell you that if you're talking to us, and I would imagine any other major center that's doing clinical trials, they will be able to provide you for the reasons why they feel it's not safe. And it always comes down to that. It's not that we want to turn people away. It's that we don't want to hurt people with what we're doing. Thank you. That was very helpful. So I have one last question and I'll let Judy ask a question. So I wanted to ask you, what do you like to do for fun? Do you ever uh, do you ever have any time for fun? I am a not so secret Broadway theater geek. When I have the opportunity, and hopefully soon we'll have the opportunity to go back to New York and start seeing live theater again. That is my quote unquote my happy place. That is what I enjoy. Have you seen Book of Mormon? I actually haven't seen Book of Mormon. It's one of the few I haven't seen. Oh, my goodness. It's my favorite musical. All right. Well, Judy, do you have any more important questions? Yeah, no, that didn't count as my real question. That didn't count as a question. So what new tweaks are you making? Where have you come from my uh, version of the test? So you've moved from bulk till to selective till, which you did for me. And then Mm -hmm. from what I understand or what I heard, now you've moved to more engineering the T cells in the entire bag to match all the mutations. And even that hasn't met with success. Like where are we moving and trying to get this to work? We are still very much in It seems odd to say that six years later, we're still sort of in the same place, but in order to test this hypothesis, we just haven't treated enough people. Part of that is because what we do takes a long time. It takes us anywhere from four to six months to find the right T cells to give somebody. Judy, in fact, had time to go on a different clinical trial while we were working. And as you might imagine, during that time frame, some patients progress a little too much for our therapy to be safe for them anymore. And so we haven't had the opportunity to treat as many patients as we would like. Hopefully in the next month or two, we'll have more results that I can make public because we're trying to get them published currently, but we have treated an additional six patients similar to the way that we've treated Judy. And we've seen some tantalizing results. None were the home run that your treatment was, but it's hard. We we're joking, not baseball analogies. So if Judy's treatment was a home run, we've managed to hit a couple of singles and doubles and maybe even a triple, but we've left all our runners stranded on base. We're working to get better at that. Now, that's, as far, that's a good thing, right? They're not out. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's such a difficult position right now because what we were able to achieve in Judy was what we call proof of principle. So up until that point, we didn't have any idea whether it would work in patients who had breast cancer at all. And now we're in this tantalizing position of, we know it can work. What do we have to do to make it work better? That's the interesting place to be scientifically, 
but it's also incredibly devastating because you're having to sort through what works and what doesn't work. And you can't ever do it as fast as you want to. And one of the ways that we're trying to sort that out is by moving to genetically engineered T cells. So for instance, what we know about Judy's tumor and the way her T cells respond to it only makes up about 23, 24% of what she actually got. Now, what are the other 75% of that bag doing? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's attacking her tumor in ways we don't know how to test yet. And so what are the tools we can use to understand that better? There's a lot. There's defining what a neoantigen is, defining how to look for them. We found one way and we've gotten very good at looking at at those in a high throughput, but there are other types of neoantigens that we are still learning how to explore. And one of those is looking at the shared antigens like TP53, like KRAS. If we can develop something such that a person comes to me who has a TP53 mutation and has the appropriate white blood cell type or HLA, sometimes it's not four to six months before we can have a therapy for them. Sometimes it's, oh, we already have a TCR for T-cell-based therapy for that. So that's what we're trying to study now, but it is early, early days on that. And while it's true, we have not had a tremendous success with that. We just started that trial in 2019. So we will continue to pursue this as long as we are still seeing glimmers of hope. If we continue to treat patients without any evidence of of response, then it may be time to slow things down. But I can tell you the trial that Judy was on is actually a, a combination trial for a lot of different types of cancer, but we are focusing very heavily on the breast cancer cohort because of the successes that, that we've seen, because of those runners standing on base. That's right. While it may feel like in very real concrete terms, we haven't changed our techniques a whole lot since we treated Judy. We're getting smarter about how we're applying them and hopefully a little bit faster. I do have one other question. So Mm -hmm. if people do want to be in this trial, are they technically being enrolled in the match trial first and then go through maybe some other lower hanging fruit before you get um, assigned to the till? therapy is a possibility. Is that still how it works with the intake nurses? So the match trial is something separate that patients can choose to be a part of, but it's not a requirement. What we do is we have a separate protocol with which we study the tissue. So for instance, when you first came to us in August of that year, the first thing we did was sign you up onto this tissue protocol so that we could study your tumor. And then once we knew that we could develop a treatment for you, we had you sign up on the actual treatment protocol and then move forward from there. And part of that is because we have different therapies available here in our surgery branch other than just the till. And so it's not a known entity at the time when someone has their operation, whether that tissue is going to be appropriate for till or whether we need to move to a TCR-based therapy or something new we may come up with in the next three to six months. We do that so that we keep our options open and flexible. Not every patient has till that are appropriate for us to give, but they may have till that we can extract the information to build a TCR therapy for them. And that takes a little bit longer than the four months that Judy experienced. So here's the question, and I promise you it's the last one. What is the right time for a person to start thinking about your trial? At what point would you say this person is ready to try your trial? The way that our group has written the study, because of the experimental nature of it, someone has to have gone through at least one line of chemotherapy. That's with the, the knowledge that at the point where we resect a tumor, that patient may go on to get a second line of chemotherapy. And because there are so many effective treatments for stabilizing disease for patients who have metastatic breast cancer, that was a requirement of our IRB to make certain that we were not depriving anyone of the privilege of getting good long-term stability from effective treatments. And so it requires two lines of therapy for treatment, but we will resect after one. There have been some situations where If a patient has a tumor that is easily accessible and they're willing, sometimes we'll do it before any line of therapy. 
I see. But the earlier, the better. What we have to look for when we evaluate someone is the sort of operation that it would require to take it out. Because the last thing we want to do is add surgical problems on top of what is already a devastating problem. So for somebody who's diagnosed de novo, it wasn't Julie or me, but for somebody who's diagnosed de novo and has the primary tumor still in, would that satisfy your requirement? There are some certain limitations there. We're not built to, let me phrase this the right way before it ends up on a national broadcast. (laughs) Um, You you think very highly of us. (laughs) Yes. Taking care of primary breast tumors is a system-wide phenomenon. You have to have the right OR staff. You have to have the right plastic surgeon. You have to have the right everything in order to do that. So it's in very limited situations if a, a person still has a primary and that we can address it in a way that doesn't require extensive oncoplastic techniques, oh, that's right. then that's a possibility. I personally still review all of the scans of every patient that comes in requesting to be screened. And the reason I do that is that I want to be certain that if we're going to ask someone to come here to Bethesda, I want there to be a greater than 95% chance that we're going to accept them. I want to thank you so much for spending more than an hour with us. And my problem now, and it really is a serious problem, how do I edit anything you set out? I can't. There was some coughing. There was some... All right, so I'll edit out coughing and I will edit Judy out. But other than that, what am I going to (laughs) do? Thank you so very much. A lot of people who want to edit me out, so... It was such an incredible pleasure. And I will tell you and all your listeners, I'm here if you need me, but I hope never to have to meet you. That's right. Well, thank you, Stephanie, and please send our thanks to Dr. Rosenberg, too. Yes, please do. Stay safe in your kayak. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. We conducted this interview two months ago when telemedicine visits were still commonplace. Johns Hopkins alone hosted more than 1 million televisits, serving more than 330,000 unique patients since the pandemic began. Even though the initial spike in telehealth visits was eased, use of the services has stabilized at levels 38 times higher than before the pandemic, according to the numbers obtained by the consulting firm McKinsey & Company. It is the beginning of November now, and states are rolling back many of those pandemic workarounds. And the ability to conduct certain virtual appointments may be nearing an end. Laws and policies haven't been updated to reflect new technological realities, partly because state medical boards want to hang on to their authority, and partly because some physicians want to protect their own practices. Licensing is also a source of state revenue, as we all know. If the rules are rolled back, which appears to be more and more likely, patients will have to go back to in-person visits, often having to drive hours to see their out-of-state doctor. The new, easier rules for clinical trials might be in jeopardy as well. It will mean a lot of inconvenience and time on the road than what was allowed during COVID. But will doctors whose patients have spent the past year or more growing comfortable with virtual visits also be willing to take steps that could likely involve extra costs and a lot of red tape? For instance, submitting license application in another state can take weeks or even months. They must pay application fees and then have to keep up with a range of ongoing requirements such as continuing education, which actually vary by state. The American Medical Association, unsurprisingly, wants to keep the old licensing rules in place. But others want more flexibility. In fact, there is precedent for easing multi-state licensing requirements. The Department of Veterans Affairs, for example, allows medical staffers who are properly licensed in at least one state to treat patients in any VA facility. Patient advocates are pushing states to extend their pandemic rules. If you have done so, Arizona, for example, 
made permanent the rules allowing out-of-state medical providers to practice telemedicine for Arizona residents, as long as they register with the state and their home state license is in good standing. Connecticut has similar rules, and they have now been stretched until June 2023. Advocates also call for the federal government to enact more sweeping changes and back legislation pending in Congress that would temporarily allow medical professionals licensed in one state to treat either in person or via televisits patients in any other state. Clearly, more to come on this topic, so stay tuned. Next week, our founder and the brain of this operation, Lisa Laudico, and a member of the Road to Cure team and our own medical professional, Dr. Alan Landsberger, interview a brilliant researcher and clinician from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Dr. Sarat Chandralapati, who is actually both an MD and a PhD. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and the Road to a Cure series is produced and edited by our amazing and brilliant senior producer, Victoria Goldberg. In addition, the Road to a Cure series team includes Dr. Paula Jane, Dr. Ellen Landsberger, and Kate Fitzer. Expert sound design by Samantha Silverstein. Original music from Connor Kinsley. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our News Blast, rate and review us and look for a new episode every Monday. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rmbclife.org. We would love to hear from you.